0: Well, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, Today we have uh, a great seminar for you uh, to share, uh, looking at the US government response to crises. Um, So I'd just like to welcome everyone to this event. Uh, We've got uh, around 60 people already online, but the numbers we're expecting to grow in the next couple of minutes with a number of registrations. So I'd just like to start, and before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of Australia and recognize their continuing connection to land, water, and culture. The University of Sydney stands on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I pay my respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. I further acknowledge the traditional owners of the country of which you are on, and pay respects to their elders, past, present, and future. Today, we have the extreme privilege of having Dr. Scott Deitchman on the line to talk to us about the US response to disasters. Scott is an MD with a Master of Public Health and has served for 30 years as a commissioned officer in the US Public Health Service. Uh, he retired in May 2017 at the rank of Rear Admiral. At the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, he led the CDC's responses to public health challenges, chemical, radiological, and natural disasters, including the 2004 Asian tsunami disaster, uh, the 2010 Deepwater Horizon spill. I'm not sure if he was played by Mark Wahlberg in that movie or not, but um, nonetheless, uh, he was intimately involved in that response. And the 2011 Fukushima Daiichi nuclear reactor emergency. Rear Admiral Deichman uh, served in the White House as the Vice President's Medical Advisor for Homeland Security Affairs. He is currently a principal with Gordon and Rosenblatt, uh, consulting on prevention and control of disease outbreaks caused by Legionella and other organisms. Dr. Deitchman also serves an adjunct faculty uh, at the Uniformed Services University of the Health Sciences in the National Centre for Disaster Medicine and Public Health. His honours include Distinguished Service Medal. Meritus Service Medal and Outstanding Service Medal. Uh, Scott, it is a tremendous opportunity uh, to have you on today and thank you for staying up late for us to join us. Um, You have a tremendous amount of experience in serving with the US Public Health Service as well as those key positions as a senior advisor in the US government. Um, I'm just wondering, what is it that you have learned about the role of leadership in responding to crises over over your extensive career?
1: Well, Adam, thank you very much. I also want to um, add uh, my appreciation to the uh, elders of our respective countries and also give my thanks to the United States Study Center for inviting me to participate in this. To get to your question about leadership, um, my experience of course was specific to Leading responses to health crises. And it was something that I was never trained in in medical school. And so I had to really go out and and look at um, different models of crisis leadership in other disciplines because there wasn't a lot that had been discussed in the health literature. What I found is that you see a lot of the same attributes occurring across different types of Environments, whether it's traditional first responders, military teams, aviation. Leadership involves needing to be competent in the discipline that you're leading people in, but obviously one can't know everything. So I've sometimes suggested that you need to know just enough to evaluate what you're being told by the subject matter experts that you should be surrounding yourself with because if you're leading a response to a crisis, you want to be surrounded with the best and be able to take advantage of their information. People think of crisis leaders or emergency leaders as being decisive, and that's certainly true. But I actually learned a trick from um, a mission uh, control specialist with uh, NASA, National Aeronautics and Space Administration, If you saw the movie Apollo 13, where Ed Harris plays the character of Gene Kranz, he was the uh, leader in mission control. And this person from NASA told me that they were told that when a crisis comes up, one of the first questions they ask is, how long can I put this decision off? And having identified that time, they use that to gather as much information as they can so that when the time comes when the decision must be made, It can be made from as informed a perspective as possible. Obviously, an important part of being a crisis leader is maintaining situational awareness, being aware of what the evolving situation is and the potential repercussions. One of the things that I saw over and over, both as a leader and watching others lead, was that it's also the leader's responsibility to translate that situational awareness picture that you're forming in your head and share that either with the people that are working with you on your team and because we all have bosses with your superiors uh, i used to uh, one of my responsibilities was to share that kind of situational awareness with the director of the cdc and sometimes with leadership of our department of health and human services the equivalent of the ministry of health Obviously, a leader has to coordinate, a leader must communicate, and that's communicating up, communicating down, and communicating across, particularly across agencies, outside your own agency, uh, avoiding getting trapped in what we call silos, or what I once heard a military officer call cylinders of excellence. And the last point I would make is that there are some people who think that a commander needs to be strong, decisive, and some people even say that in an emergency, an emergency no time for a democracy, and almost suggest that a crisis leader should be an autocrat. My experience, and the experience in the aviation community in particular, is that that's a bad idea, because the commander can't know everything, can't see everything, and so it needs to be able to take the input of the team members who may have perspectives that the leader doesn't have. Just
0: if I was to pick up on that point about the coordination then though in particular, and and those points about leadership are so well made and I think we're seeing, there's been a lot of attention internationally, obviously on um, different approaches of leadership, and in particular, you know, the countries that have got female leaders that have done better than other countries. Um, But I just want to come back to this issue around coordination for a moment, because the United States and Australia are two of around 25 countries that operate under a federal system or structure. Um, and I'm just wondering, do you see whether or not that presents any particularly unique challenges that leaders operating in a federal structure face when dealing with crises, um, and and trying to sort of coordinate events as a result of that?
1: Adam, it's, it's a real challenge, uh, at least it is here. Um, it really stems from the founding of our country. Um, when the nation you know, had declared itself independent from a strong royalist government. And there was a a strong desire on the part of the founders not to have that strong uh, central government that could potentially, uh, again, try to exert that kind of control. And so our Constitution specifically says that unless a power is specifically identified in in the Constitution as belonging to the federal government, By default, everything else belongs. uh, The primacy is with the states and with the state executives, in our case, um, the elected governors. And so what we found in what we the situation that we lived with when I was with the CDC is that public health is not mentioned in the Constitution. So the state health department, usually with an appointed health officer who is appointed by the governor, really has the authority for all health issues within that state. And we at the federal level could make recommendations. We could make resources available. Uh, We could offer to go to the state and assist um, with their permission, of course. But we couldn't dictate to them what their actions would be. And what we see is that uh, in different states, state executives, whether that's The governor or the state health officer may do things differently and that may reflect regional differences in politics in cultural perspectives and in economic realities makes uniformity really unlikely across the country and finally we see that within states they may be organized differently you may have one state where all the local health departments are part of the state health department and another state where the local health departments are uh, administrative units within the city government. And while they report their disease findings to the state, they don't belong to the state health department. Quite a lot of difference. Mm.
0: And uh, I mean, you've you've mentioned health departments there as an example, and understandably, um, and I, I hope you'll forgive me, but we've got to sort of um, talk about the lion or the elephant in the room, which is the the COVID pandemic. So The World Health Organization um, recommends that pandemic preparedness exercises are conducted regularly in order to develop what they describe a culture of exercise, practice and revision. Uh, Within Australia, our last national exercise was held in 2008. I'm just wondering, when was the last US exercise and how important do you see those types of activities really being?
1: Well, Adam, the uh, most recent US exercises uh, occurred after I left government, so I'm familiar with them from the reporting in the media. Apparently uh, in January 2017, the outgoing Obama administration held a pandemic exercises for members of the incoming Trump administration. And this was really modeled after a similar exercise, or, or the concept of doing these exercises was modeled after a similar program that the George W. Bush administration had done for the Obama team when they came in. In fact, uh, President Bush's transfer is now regarded as a model that others should uphold. Um, In this uh, 2017 exercise, incoming um, cabinet officials, at least to the extent that they had been appointed by the time the exercise was held, were paired with their outgoing counterparts from President Obama's cabinet. And then even more recently than that, According to reporting in early 2019, the US Department of Health and Human Services held a pandemic exercise for multiple uh, federal agencies and a number of states. Um, This was called Crimson Contagion. And uh, if you look for that term in Google News, you'll find a number of articles describing it. These exercises are really important for a number of reasons. Um, I think one of the most important is that they give the players the opportunity to experience what the situation might be like, at least in some small and artificial way, if they get called upon to serve during a real pandemic, gives them a chance to make decisions, see which decisions turn out to be good ones and learn from the ones that weren't so good. So it helps expand awareness. And it also um, can be an opportunity to identify gaps, either in uh, organizations, organization or in resources. The challenge, of course, once the exercise is over, is motivating change and perhaps motivating change in budgets to incorporate lessons from the exercise. And it's also a challenge to maintain continuity across administrations and sometimes within the course of an administration as individuals who have participated in the exercise move on to other positions and new people who haven't had that experience come in.
0: Yeah, that element of uh... Uh, institutional memory, I'd imagine, is is critical to both of our governments, because people do move on to different positions. um, And so therefore, you kind of potentially lose that, that, uh, that knowledge. Um, Look, I'm I'm kind of intrigued, because obviously, um, the pandemic, again, it, it, it's taking everyone's attention um, at the moment. And I was reading a, a piece earlier this morning about from a colleague who was describing it as a hegemon, that it's basically become all-consuming and everything else has to sort of go by the wayside in, in, in accordance to this. But I mean, a- accepting that you're not currently serving in the administration, can you offer any insights into the structures and systems that maybe sort of supporting the US government responds? Uh, because this isn't the only crisis which is underway at the moment. I mean, we've, we've still got... Um, areas of conflict around the world. We've still got other sort of uh, disasters and humanitarian crises, uh, which the pandemic is just kind of overlaying now on. I'm just wondering if you can sort of provide us with any sort of insights as to what's going on in the structures of the US government.
1: Well, Adam, I I think I can respond to that uh, from a combination of background knowledge and also, uh, you know, insights from what we're seeing in occasional uh, media reporting. We've all heard quite a bit about the Corona task force, which is a few individuals that are working in the White House and are directly advising the president. That's really kind of a special structure that apparently was created because of this event. There is a standing um, emergency preparedness and response uh, system within the White House. Uh, There is the National Security Council, which is the council of the heads of the agencies that have emergency response Uh, responsibilities. Um, And the National Security Council meets with the president, um, helps the president make the uh, decisions and identify what resources are necessary, helps the president direct coordination across different efforts. But also within the White House, there's a large um, team of individuals called the National Security Staff. National Security Staff members are typically full-time career federal employees who have been temporarily detailed from their home agencies to sit in the White House on any one of various teams who are tasked with um, keeping an eye on various uh, domestic and international policy issues and um, developing policy recommendations to be submitted to the National Security Council or the larger council of all the uh, cabinet secretaries for evaluation and for the president's final decision on which of those will become national policy. And um, within the National Security Council, there, in other administrations, there have been various teams uh, that uh, focus on issues of biodefense or health preparedness. So certainly uh, pandemic planning would be part of that, has been in the past, and doubtless that group is very busy right now. But in addition to these things, outside of the White House, we have some dedicated structures for coordinating emergency response within the United States. Uh, Of course, after the World Trade Center attacks on 9-11-2001, it was felt that there was a need for a single federal agency that would coordinate that emergency preparedness across the entire federal government that became our Department of Homeland Security. Department of Homeland Security maintains the National Operations Center, or NOC, which is the principal operations center and provides situational awareness, which we've talked about previously, for the entire federal government, as well as for affected local, state, and tribal governments. Our federal emergency management agency, FEMA, is part of uh, the Department of Homeland Security They also run a a coordination center, it's called the National Response Coordination Center, NRCC. The NRCC uh, is a multi-agency coordination center and it provides the operational support to the field response to ensure that federal operations are synchronized across governments and across the different field sites. Um, In addition to that, most agencies have their own emergency operations center. I was the incident commander in CDCs when we activated it. And these folks are all operating under a suite of uh, planning documents that would do, that are supposed to give us advanced thinking on how we will respond and how we will use this infrastructure in an emergency response. Probably the overarching document for that is our national response framework, the NRF, but it is supplemented by a series of incident-specific annexes, one of which is the biological Incident Annex. And all these documents, incidentally, are publicly available from uh, the FEMA website. Finally, um, from media reports, we know of a few specific things going on in relation to the COVID 19 response. Uh, Not surprisingly, because I've seen them myself, there are daily conference calls between um, Health and Human Services agencies and our Federal Emergency Management Agency, FEMA agencies. And based on what I've seen in the past, these are probably to share information updates, and they may uh, be places where people raise response or policy issues, but those issues will probably be taken offline and resolved uh, in a more quiet setting. We also know there are task forces that are looking at specific issues in the COVID-19 response. Some of the ones I've seen mentioned are community mitigation, community-based testing sites, and a supply chain task force that's dealing with access to materials such as personal protective equipment, ventilators, and testing equipment. Now, who's leading those agencies, which agencies are, those task forces, which agencies are participating, whether other task forces exist. We don't know that on the outside, but it wouldn't be surprising if they were. And hopefully we'll learn more about that as these issues get discussed in after action reports.
0: Mm, Absolutely. Um, I mean, there seems to be obviously some uh, slight differences here between how the US system operates and the Australian system, but there's some similarities as well, just even in terms of where uh, the ops centres are located. So for this in our pandemic context, we've got our ops centre is in our department of health, our federal department of health, which is the lead technical agency. And they're sort of keeping an eye on everything and then advising government up through that way. So there's some slight slight differences there. Um, I guess one of the other aspects that I find quite intriguing by this is, is the level of complexity. In the United States, um, given so many different agencies and, and the coordination for that and the mechanisms um, must be uh, significant. But I want to sort of come back or, or pivot back to this question of leadership, if I can, um, because we've seen obviously, I mean, the world is watching what's going on in the United States. And I think um, as of today, uh, you're nearing somewhere like 90,000 deaths um, across the country, which is just, uh, for, a, for a country like Australia, where we've had just coming up to 100 deaths, obviously, this is, it's, it's quite heartbreaking for us to, to observe. Um, so I want to come back to this question of leadership. Um, so the Trump administration initially announced that it was disbanding that COVID task force. Um, but within, I think it was 24 hours, the president then reversed that decision and sort of said he wasn't aware of how popular the task force was, um, which I thought was an interesting uh, observation. During a crisis like this, um, like the pandemic, can leaders afford to change track or, or switch switch messaging um, like this and all reverse these decisions? And, and how much can they get away with before it becomes problematic?
1: Well. I think there is a feeling that um, leaders, <clears throat> excuse me, especially high elected officials, should be cons- consistent and constant. And that once a decision is made, they should adhere to it. And that somehow changing your mind is a sign of weakness. And I think there's a danger with that. and I would offer by way of illustration something that i saw a previous uh, centers for disease control director do this was back at the start of the 2009 h1n1 influenza pandemic which you know going into it we thought we might be dealing with an event very much like what covid 19 has turned out to be in 2009 fortunately that didn't happen but at the beginning we didn't know that and as with the beginning of COVID-19, there were a lot of things we didn't know. And I remember in his first press conference, the CDC director, um, his first press conference as part of the H1N1 response, the CDC director, among other things said, I wanna make something clear from the beginning here. There are a lot of things we don't know and there are many aspects of this in which we are exploring new territory. We will do some things, and we will say some things, and they'll turn out to be wrong as we learn more. You may see that as we learn more, I'm going to change my guidance, I'm going to change my recommendations, and that's because we're going to continue to update our response based on the best available science as we become aware of it. We will share that science with you, and if, they, if I don't know the answer to one of your questions, perhaps I'll be able to tell you what we're doing to find out. So, yes, a leader needs a, a certain amount of constancy, but also a certain amount of flexibility. And perhaps the most important thing is that they explain why they're maintaining that flexibility, how important it is, and how it fits into the context of the larger response.
0: So on that note, and I I come to this uh, as a former registered nurse as well. So when we we look at or when I look at um, instances like President Trump promoting hydroxychloroquine um, as a possible treatment for COVID-19 before the results of clinical trials were in, um, I was a little unsettled by that. um, And I suspect a number of public health people were. Um, We've seen in Australia a former politician and businessman use his connections to purchase 30 million doses of the medicine, um, just based, and he, he said explicitly it was based on the president's remarks. Um, we've also, though, seen at least one individual in the United States die after taking hydro- hydroxychloroquine, sorry. Um, what are the sort of challenges that you see in this type of situation? Where is it where you draw the line and and how do you manage this? Because obviously there's a lot of pressure on leaders to be able to sort of provide solutions to the problems. And there's a lot of expectations that that's going to happen. So I'm just interested. How do you approach that?
1: Well, I, you're right. There's a lot of pressure on a, a leader. And I think it's it's very tempting to uh, reach for something that's presented as a sort of silver bullet, the thing that's going to solve all your problems and bring everything back to normal as quickly as possible. Um, unfortunately, those kinds of silver bullets are very rare. and um, To some extent, it relates back to what we were just talking about in the sense that um, I think it's best if a leader is confident enough to stand up and say, there are things we don't know yet. Um, We don't yet know um, everything we need to know about this particular virus, how it's best treated, what medications it will uh, respond to. who in particular might benefit from those medications? Uh, and because we don't know those things, this is what we're doing to, um, to find out. And I will bring you additional updates and we will disseminate the best possible guidelines as we're able to develop them. I think another strategy that a leader can employ is one that I saw used during the um, Deepwater Horizon oil spill response, which was certainly had its health aspects, but was not primarily a health crisis. It was an environmental crisis. The similarity was that there were a lot of unknowns. No one had had to deal with the situation of a well that was releasing this much oil. In fact, originally the amount of oil that it was releasing was even an unknown, Uh, nor had anyone previously tried to cap a well flowing at such a rate, and doing it at such a depth. So the National Incident Commander uh, happened to be the head of the Coast Guard, uh, Admiral Thad Allen. And Admiral Allen created something called the Interagency Solutions Group, which was a gathering of all the scientific and policy um, expertise from the different agencies so that they could focus their efforts together on these questions, uh, m- many of which were scientific issues that um, needed to be addressed. In fact, one of the things they did, there were a lot of people, as you see in many emergencies, who sort of came out of the woodwork with their proposed solution. And rather than the National Instant Commander struggling to figure out which ones um, to adopt, his, his strategy was that any such uh, individual would be referred to that interagency solutions group, so that the qualified scientific and policy experts could be the ones to make the evaluation. It freed him up to do the administrative tasks that are that come up with leadership. Mm.
0: The, we, I think we'd probably agree then that, that we've seen a very different style of leadership from President Trump on, on this matter. Um, and at least in terms of confidence, that doesn't seem to be something that he appears to be lacking. Um, but I, w- I won't ask. I won't put you on the spot to, to respond to that one. Um, I guess in terms then of uh, another element or feature that we've seen of the current response is has been that both in within Australia as well as in a number of countries around the world, we've actually seen the mobilisation of military personnel in an attempt to sort of augment or, or supplement uh, civilian response capabilities. And given your experiences and your, your work that you've been involved in, what do you sort of see the key as the key benefits in that space um, of involving military personnel in this type of activity? Um, and are there some limits or, or concerns that you have around um, what someone would describe as the militarization of, of a health response?
1: Well, Adam, I feel a little funny answering this question for you because uh, I've read some of your papers. I know that you are yourself an expert in this area, but I'm happy to share some of my own thoughts. Um, there, As with anything, uh, there are both uh, benefits and risks associated with the use of uh, military and disaster responses. The benefit is that they bring resources that often no one else can mobilize as quickly as they can, especially if those resources require transport. And I'm thinking especially of logistics. There are few organizations, except perhaps Federal Express, that have the capability that the military does to move materiel and personnel across distances long and short in a short period of time. Um, Because of a military's responsibility to be prepared for a security threat they maintain that capability and it can be repurposed to emergency response uh, we also sometimes see military personnel used for to provide security and on one hand that would seem like a natural thing they're people with guns and uh, would-be lawbreakers respect guns but it's not that simple um it really they're not trained to be law enforcement personnel and so our policy here in the States is that they can only do that as assistance to the civil law enforcement uh, structure. In fact, we have in the United States a, a longstanding law that uh, goes by the Latin term posse comitatus, but it basically says that the military cannot by itself play a domestic law enforcement role. And I think, um, well, before we get to some of the downsides, Um, We also see the military used as healthcare extenders, either by deploying uh, military medical personnel uh, to civilian settings or setting up military field hospitals to augment um, healthcare infrastructure in a community that is either overwhelmed uh, or their uh, infrastructure was destroyed in a disaster. Sometimes the military will provide the field hospital but then they'll have the community physicians actually being the ones working in it. So you have kind of a compromise or a blending of the two. And finally, um, here in the US, the military um, has a certain amount of medical research infrastructure. Um, A lot of that is because uh, military personnel may have to be deployed to areas where there are uh, diseases of concern that are not threats here in the uh, domestic United States. Research infrastructure can also be applied to try to identify, uh, as in this case, uh, looking uh, for, to learn more about the COVID-19 virus and how to treat it. Uh, I did say that there are some limitations and cautions that apply to the use of the military, and certainly we see this in international as well as domestic settings. Um, One is that the military has a standing mission a primary mission of national defense. And we used to joke sometimes that if you would bring representatives of the U.S. military into a planning room for a domestic event, they would hem and haw a little bit because in the back of their minds, they're thinking, we don't know what other responsibilities we may have to address concurrently with the disaster. So we will be happy to give you what's available at the time, but you probably shouldn't Base your planning on specific military resources. Um, Also, military responders may be unfamiliar with the statutes, regulations, and practices governing the civil civil functions that they're supposed to augment. Um, That's more of an issue in international settings, but it can be an issue domestically as well. And finally, since we are talking to an international audience today, in countries where the government may already have some authoritarian tendencies, or whether uh, the c- civilians are concerned about that. The use of uh, military can either be misused or be perceived as being misused to extend the range of government control, and that raises tensions that actually get in the way of your disaster response. Mm, absolutely,
0: I uh, for a number of years I used to be invited to go down to uh, our. One of our defence training centres and talked to military personnel about health issues and uh, it was quite an interesting experience in that inevitably you'd sort of find defence officers, uh, commanding officers sort of say to me well health it's not really a security issue um, and it was always interesting uh, having talked with uh, at length with a number of US military how they viewed the issue of biological challenges like uh, pandemics. And uh, there was a distinct sort of difference. But Australia, we've obviously had a bit of a rough start to the beginning of 2020, With first with the bushfires, where the ADF were deployed, and now with the pandemic, where mm-hmm. the ADF have been deployed. So I think there's going to be some interesting conversations going on from that. Look, I'm going to pause there, uh, because we're, we're uh, getting through um, our presentation time-wise. And I'm conscious of the fact that there's a number of, of uh, questions that were pre-submitted um, we've received around 20 questions, so we're not going to be able to get through all of them this morning. And I do apologise to those of you that haven't yet, or oh, that that don't have your question being asked. Um, but now is also an opportunity for those of you who are online, if you wanted to ask Scott a particular question, um, jump on uh, to the Q and A section and uh, and write your question. And we've got uh, some people standing by to help identify and moderate those. So um, the first question that I'm going to ask you this morning, though, that had been pre-submitted, is from Robert Talbot Stern. Um, And he asks, how much does politics play into US crisis disaster preparation, and how to handle such preparation when administrations change? I'm wondering if you could sort of share any insights there.
1: Well, it's always uh, interesting to talk about uh, politics. I think the reality is that politics plays a role in almost everything that happens in government and certainly because of different political perspectives result in differing assessment of threats and different budget priorities. Uh, that said, sometimes, um, uh, an administrations established political priorities, uh, are upended by an event that, that a disaster that occurs. I think the, um, certainly the event of nine 11 and the, um, uh, well, in the attack on the World Trade Center, followed immediately by the anthrax attacks, pretty much changed the agenda of uh, the George W. Bush administration. And uh, we spent uh, most of the remaining time with national security um, and preparing for terrorism threats, uh, as well as trying to better organize uh, our emergency response system, being a part of that uh, administration because of that. And uh, uh, when Hurricane Katrina came and it was widely recognized even within the administration's own after action report that that wasn't our finest hour, Uh, there were further changes that were recommended and in some cases implemented as a result of that. As I said earlier, I think to the the George W. Bush uh, administration credit, um, the uh, transition for emergency planning between his administration and the next one was so good that it really set the model uh, for the uh, what transition should be. And also, I think uh, President Bush gets a certain amount of credit for the amount of pandemic planning that was done um, within his administration. Uh, the story is that he read the book, The Great Influenza by the American historian John Barry, not uh, the former U.S. ambassador. And um, that so raised his concern about the possibility of a pandemic event that uh, he ordered that planning be undertaken. And a lot of the social distancing measures that we're using worldwide during COVID-19 were f- f- developed as part of that uh, planning exercise. Um, and of course, you know, we have to recognize that when a new administration comes in, ultimately the ship has a new captain and that new captain will determine the course.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I I remember, um, because I've been working in this space for a number of years, that uh, uh, the work that President Bush started, and and that was replicated here in Australia by our uh, then Prime (coughs) Minister, John Howard, as well. That was kind of really the start of of a lot of focus around pandemic preparedness at that time. So, um, and we held a couple of national exercises at at that point. Um, Look, there's another question here from Matt Francis, who asks, are there lessons from the response to Hurricane Katrina, which have been implemented to improve agency capability or coordination?
1: There were an, that's a really good question. And there were a number of lessons from the response to Hurricane Katrina that were implemented uh, uh, to achieve those goals. One of the big changes was response timing. Um, a lot of, you know, it's expensive to mobilize uh, an emergency response system to start putting people into the field And traditionally, the mechanism had been to wait until we had intel intelligence on what the real needs were, whether that was reporting from the affected community or even getting boots on the ground by outside responders who could report back. Well, there are two problems with that. Uh, One is that um, that necessarily introduces a delay in getting um, relief to the affected people. The other is one that we saw in uh, the 2004 Christmas tsunami. Uh, Indonesia had decentralized its um, public health system, giving a lot more autonomy to the provincial health departments. And they were the ones who were supposed to report in if they had needs. So what I have been told by an American uh, who was part of the response was that um, When the central government in Jakarta didn't hear from the health department in Banda Aceh, they sort of assumed that no news was good news, when in fact the department had been wiped out and there was no one to give a report. So after Hurricane Katrina, there was a change in philosophy and that was begun in the Bush administration and it was really advanced by Craig Fugate, who directed the Federal Emergency Management Agency under President Obama. And his phrase was, go early and go big in anticipation of need, so that he would start moving resources forward, not so far forward that they were in harm's way, that they would, nece- that they would be wiped out by the hurricane, for example, but far enough that when the, the, the danger had passed, they could move in very quickly. And the idea was that we would accept that there would be some economic waste if it turned out those resources weren't needed because it was more important to have them out there early if they were. There was an increase in partnerships, uh, both partnerships between different government response agencies and especially partnerships between the federal agencies and the private sector because the private sector brings its own set of unique resources. Uh, we used to say that uh, we, we discovered that no one can move bottled water faster than Walmart can. And so let's take advantage of that system. Um, and finally, we realized that you can't just plan for response. You have to plan for recovery from the disaster. I mentioned earlier that our overarching national doc, uh, document uh, for, respo- for uh, disaster response is the National Response Framework. We also developed a National Disaster Recovery Framework, the NDRF, which again is available for download if you want to take a look at it.
0: So uh, I I was hypothesizing at one point with some colleagues about, gee, what would happen in the event that we had another um, bug that started circulating at the same time as COVID and we had sort of like effectively two simultaneous um, of crises. But I'm, I'm also conscious that um, the U.S. is coming into hurricane season. And Penelope Marlow asked this question um, and submitted it earlier, which was basically, how do you see U.S. planning working for a double whammy in the event there's something like a hurricane as well as on top of then COVID-19? How, what, what happens in that sort of context?
1: Well, Penelope's question is clearly an example of great minds thinking alike because there are people here in the States who are asking that same question. Um, Florida senators, you know, each, each U.S. state has two senators to the United States Senate. The two from Florida are uh, Rick Scott and Marco Rubio. And uh, Senators Scott and Rubio have asked the director of the Federal Emergency Management Agency to plan for this very possibility. Likewise, uh, within Florida, which is the state at greatest risk, the director of the State Emergency Management Agency has already Commissioned a task force that's uh, planning how they would do this. I can speculate on some of the issues they'd have. They'll have to address. One is emergency response budgets. COVID nineteen has already blown a hole in a lot of these uh, budgets, and we're going to have to figure out how we're going to fund the response for hurricanes as well. Um, We already did some planning for um, how you would respond to a hurricane during an influenza pandemic, and that will certainly help. There'll be a challenge about uh, maintaining social distancing in emergency shelters, which may need, mean that you'll need to open more shelters to accommodate that same number of people keeping further apart and therefore with less capacity per shelter. Uh, within those shelters, you may need to do some kind of entry screening, whether it's thermometers or symptoms, uh, symptom questionnaires. Uh, an increased emphasis on sanitation, perhaps uh, a lot of uh, hand washing stations scattered around the shelter, uh, frequent health checks for everyone who's there. Um, There'd be the question of what to do with someone who either shows up sick or becomes ill while they're in the shelter. And that raises the question of whether you'll need to set up a dedicated area within the shelter, or perhaps shelters that are dedicated specifically for caring for people who are sick. And I'm It reminds me of the Korean model that they've been using during COVID-19 where they have three levels of hospitals. Uh, Level one is for people who are symptomatic but don't really require skilled nursing care. And this is basically a bed in a hotel or a stadium where there's someone who comes by four times a day to check up on you. But otherwise you're just there to make sure you don't infect other people. If you require some kind of medical care, then you're transferred to an intermediate hospital. And if you require intensive care, there's a third level of hospital that's dedicated exactly to that. If the uh, healthcare facilities in the affected community have gone offline, we may need to have medical shelters that are modeled on something like that. Um, We'll also need to think about sanitation of the equipment that's used for the response because we don't want response equipment to be vehicles for transferring. And we'll need to plan on the impact of COVID-19 on responder availability, whether that's because some responders are sick and can't deploy, or whether some responders have been looted. In the American chapter of the International Red Cross, the American Red Cross, International Red Cross and Red Crescent Society, in the American Red Cross, many of their volunteers who go to the field are themselves retirees who are would be categorized as being at higher risk simply because of their age. Um, I'm sure the Red Cross has to be thinking about how they're going to be dealing with that situation in this environment.
0: Absolutely. And so we've got a couple of live questions here that have come in that I, I want to get to as well. Um, and there's one here in particular from Olivia Hanna, who's asking um, what impact a poor response to a crisis such as COVID-19 has on bro- broader public trust and confidence in the government in the longer term
1: um, that's a really complicated question i'm not sure we can do it justice here um, I think certainly um, people judge a government by its its success or or its lack thereof, but they also judge a government by the i guess how effectively it's providing services, how effectively it's communicating. You know, at the risk of going back to ground that we've already covered, we've talked about some of the important ways that um, a leader has to communicate with people in the midst of the crisis. Um, I have thought a lot in this uh, event about um, Winston Churchill's speech uh, to Parliament in the early days of the First World War, or Second World War. The uh, the famous Blood, Toil, Tears, and Sweat, where he was quite honest about how difficult it would be, and yet the speech ended on a very uplifting note because he made the point that all that toil was going to be directed at victory. And as I read the speech, he never gave any indication that anything but victory was a possible outcome. Uh, likewise, during the Second World War, Frank when Delano Roosevelt, who was a great friend of Churchill's, by the way, um, instituted these fireside chats where he sometimes went so far as to direct people to take down their maps so that he could give them details about how the response to the war effort was going and explain why they were seeing some of the headlines that they were. I think these kinds of communications are really effective in shaping the public attitude to how the response is going, but also winning the public trust. And I think they're useful models.
0: I think for those of us in Australia, um, one of the big elements that that we see is obviously, the United States and Australia share a number of common values uh, and and sort of approach the world uh, in a similar way. Um, But one of the big issues which keeps coming up, at least um, in this space, and particularly when we're dealing (laughs) with a pandemic, that I think probably most Australians would struggle and scratch our heads in confusion over is this idea of universal health cover. Um, and I'm sorry to put you on the spot like this, but we have a, a question from Lily Parchizadeh, who asks uh, to Admiral Scott Deichmann, Deichmann, um, do you think introducing Medicare for all would improve the US response to a pandemic like COVID-19 in the future?
1: Well, I think there's, two questions here. One is whether um, a universal health care system would improve access to care. Uh, but of course, the elephant standing behind that question is, is, is that feasible in the United States? Is, is it uh, something that people want? Um, and how would you make it work? I think that anything that improves access to health care will improve uh, the response to uh, a health emergency like this one. that That's almost a given. Uh, it's kind of outside the scope of this question to explore all the different responses that people have had to Senator Sanders' proposal of uh, Medicare for all, which range from enthusiastic support to a measured, how about Medicare for some and access to private care for those who prefer it to people who just don't want to go there at all? and. Um, you know, perhaps another one of these webinars would be a better place to explore all the pros and cons that have been floated for that.
0: <laughs> Fair enough. Um, we have another one here uh, that's coming live, and I'm not sure how to pronounce the first name. I'm sorry, because it could be Jose Lee or Josely. Um, she is asking. I'm assuming it's she, but uh, in light of the unprecedented fact that uh, Donald Trump has pushed a particular medical action, will it be likely? citizens can or will sue the office of the president for advice that caused death. I'm not sure what your law skills are like, Scott. <laughs>
1: um, I had, I had best pass on this one. I There are some statutes having to do with, um, suing a government official, uh, in the course of, uh, their their duties it's almost you know the the statutes exist because you know you don't want federal governments to be federal uh, officials to be afraid to do their jobs for fear of lawsuits how those would play out in this particular question I'm afraid takes a a trained legal mind which regrettably I'm not one
0: that that's that's a reasonable answer (laughs) thank you for having a stab at it nonetheless um, so we have an, another question here from Caroline Curry, um, who sort of was asking um, about the Australian government and its response and compare this to the US and the UK. And I, I guess I'm going to sort of do something naughty here and, and co-opt the question or, or take it in a very slight different direction. But that is obviously we've seen a number of different countries that have um, taken various different responses to the pandemic. Um, and obviously one of the countries that has attracted a bit of uh, criticism is uh, Sweden, for instance, in taking a herd immunity approach, as it's described. But I'm just wondering, um, what do you sort of see in terms of what needs to happen after this is all over? Um, do we need something like a multi-country study to sort of look at best practices um, and, and learn lessons? Or is that all just going to um, go by the by and, and not really needed?
1: Uh, I think anytime you can learn from a disaster of this magnitude, it's a good thing. Um, uh, I mentioned earlier Craig Fugate, the former director of the Federal Emergency Management Agency here in the United States. He and I wrote an op ed in one of our national newspapers calling for a COVID 19 commission to study how the response went here in the United States because we really need to learn from how the response went what went well what didn't and how can we improve the next time i think that same philosophy extends to the international uh, arena as well and um, there's a particular research opportunity here and that is so many countries as you've said have have been trying different things ranging from um, lockdowns of varying durations to the swedish model which is to um, not to lock down, but also not to completely dismiss the notion people are being told to maintain social distancing. And I think there's a great opportunity to compare these response policies across countries um, and how they affect the different COVID outcomes to try to develop a sense of what the best practices are. Now, this is not a simple task. You can't just say, okay, the Swedes had this death rate compared with the United States death rate, and therefore one or the other has to be superior because they're talking about very different landscapes. You have to adjust the timelines because COVID-19 arrived at different magnitudes in different countries at different times. You have to adjust for different demographic characteristics. Um, Countries have vary in um, the age of their populations and how that age is distributed. you have to adjust for differences in the healthcare systems in those countries. And so I think it's going to be actually a very challenging research project. But if someone can pull it off, probably if a team of someone's, preferably an international team, um, I think the uh, yield could be very valuable to all of us. And perhaps this is something that could be marshaled under the leadership of the World Health Organization.
0: Um. Might finish. There's a lot of um, obviously dire news out there at the moment, and I'm conscious of the fact that um, one of the key messages is always to sort of um, think about mental health and look to the future. So I want to finish on a bit of a positive note. And I think there's a, a question here from Victor Purton that kind of conceivably does that, which was, um, "What makes you optimistic? What gives you hope?"
1: Well. Um, I think one of the things that gives me hope is that uh, the way people have responded to this, um, beyond the, the fear, beyond the the tension, beyond the some cases the tragedy, there are so many people who have given what they can to try to make life during COVID a little better. Uh, sometimes it's it's the big things like the frontline healthcare workers who are they're taking care of patients accepting a certain amount of risk of exposure to themselves sometimes it's the little things like uh, getting supplies for a vulnerable person who's locked down in your neighborhood you know the, the musicians and the comics who have, have put stuff to kind of lighten our mood on YouTube I mean people have really been responding um, in a very positive way in, in so many instances and I think that gives me hope and I think that something that gives me hope is that There's an opportunity here for us to learn from this, not just about how to respond to COVID. How to address things that have been problematic for so long. Um, One of the earlier questions was about the way we have have organized healthcare in the United States. I'm hoping that we're going to learn from this and see opportunities to improve on that because we have to. Um, Have our globalized just-in-time supply chains for medical equipment and pharmaceuticals serve this well, and if not, what can we learn from that and how can we improve it? And I hope that in some ways, the fact that we've witnessed a threat that has crippled so much of the entire world is going to make it more real to people that such things are possible. And I, I'm hoping that that's going to translate to an improved appreciation of the threat that climate change poses, because maybe it, it will give a sense of immediacy to the idea that there are things out there that um, if we don't address can have catastrophic consequences and that that will motivate people to address them.
0: Admiral Deitchman, I I just want to, on behalf of the United States Studies Centre and the University of Sydney, I'd really like to thank you for your time this evening. Um, For us, it's still quite early in the morning, or we're just coming up to midday, Um, but I realise that for you, it's it's already late into the evening. So I just want to thank you for sharing your insights today with us. Um, I'm sure that the United States has been much better prepared by professionals like yourself um, over the years of dedicated service, and I just really want to acknowledge that and thank you for all the work over the years that you've put into helping prepare the United States for an event like this. Um, In the next week, uh, we're going to have another seminar looking at COVID-19 and what is the real cost of help from bad Samaritans. Um, So I'd encourage everyone to look at that um, and and register in advance for it. Um, But again, just on behalf of the University of Sydney, thank you so much for your time today.
1: Well, thank you, Adam. And I want to thank the uh, University of Sydney for the pleasure and the privilege of being here today. Uh, I really enjoyed it. I hope uh, folks found it helpful. And thank you to the audience. Thanks so much. Have a great evening. You too.